Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I would invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will look at this verse in a few moments. We are continuing our study of the apostles, men who have been molded by the Master. We have spent a number of weeks considering the various apostles, and on more than one occasion I've had people comment that uh, they didn't know how there could be that much material on some of these individuals. And I, I've tried to avoid uh, much of the speculative uh, church history that is out there, although there may be truth to some of it. Uh, it, is, it is hard sometimes to real, know what is uh, real and what has been expanded. Um, there's possibility of embellishment with some of that as uh, some of these men have been elevated and yet Ephesians tells us they are foundational to the local church. That these, for the establishment of the church, uh, these men were part of that. I say there may be embellishment this summer when we were in uh, Rome, the papal archbasilica of St. John Lateran, and there in Rome, they had statues for every one of the apostles. And they were massive statues. I actually took a couple of pictures. I thought of using those, but I thought, I'm I'm taking pictures of uh, the statue for Simon the Zealot which all we know is his politics, but there's this beautiful statue, this carved marble, and, and you had one for every one of them. I thought, uh, we really don't know much about them. In fact, I find it interesting, the first chapter of Fox's Book of Martyrs discusses the martyrdom of the apostles, and it's done in two pages. Now, Fox's Book of Martyrs has over 370 pages of various uh, situations, and all of the apostles are covered in two pages, Uh, some of them in one sentence. Uh, None of them have more than a paragraph or two at the very most. And I I thought it was interesting because as I just thumbed through the book, uh, William Tyndale has four times the information in Fox's Book of Martyr. John Wycliffe, twice as much, and even George Winshart, who probably most of you have never heard of a man that was burned at the stake for taking the gospel to Scotland, has, has far more information. In fact, the description tells about his, his disposition, what he looked like, what he would wear, and I thought, we have none of that for the apostles. Other than a few glimpses and, and recognizing that, and you know, like Simon the Zealot, who we considered last week, he's, he's known for his politics. We've considered the historical aspect of, of when he lived. But really, the largest group of the apostles that we see is these are men who were faithful without fame. We know very little about them. These are men who sat in the upper room and heard firsthand the teaching of Jesus in that upper room discourse. Uh, we study that in the Gospel of John. Their, their fears and questions are provided to us and, and the hopes they had as they hear Jesus teaching about heaven, that he will come again. Their questions are where we get the, the you know, how do we know where you're going? How can we know the way? And, and Jesus responds, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
And so these, these key passages that, that flow out of their uncertainty and questions, that, that he's, he's talking to them about peace in an unstable, superficial world. And then after the resurrection of Jesus, they observed his ascension into heaven. They, they gathered together in one place, and they were there when Pentecost came. And not only were they there for Christ's betrayal, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, they were present for the birthday of the church at Pentecost. And, and they're stated to be the, the foundation of the church. And, and yet the truth is, when we look at this list, and we've considered it many times, that as, as we consider this list, most of these apostles are noted by what we don't know about them. We have little windows into their lives, and we've sought to learn from that. And, and yet, really, how many of us could even name them? I know when, I, when I'm trying to come up with them, I, I'm mentally going through the song I learned in children's church. There were 12 disciples Jesus called, and, 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 I, and then I get confused because Bartholomew, well, that's Nathaniel, and, and the different names. And even to name them, and yet these are the 12 apostles. And, and, and the best, they are best known for being unknown. Do we, do we realize the significance of that? You know, we live in a day when some people are famous just because they're famous. You know, they have, a, they have popularity online or in some sector, and, and because of that, they're, they're famous. Herbert Lockyer, in his, his book on the apostles, refers to these men as models of mediocrity. Here are the men who were foundational to the establishing of the church, present when the church began, but we know practically nothing about them. And to understand that the importance of this is that really the emphasis is, is not on these men, but on their faithfulness. I've had you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, but look with me at verse 58. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The importance of being faithful in serving the Lord. And I think what we see in these men is that testimony of faithfulness. That as we look at this, we find that the largest group is vir the virtually unknown. And as we come to the end of that list, we've come to that, that third category as they're break, broken up into really three groups. That third category, other than Judas, the one who betrayed Christ, we know very little about James of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas of James. And, and recognizing that the, the largest group is really this group of unknown. And I think it's important to realize that the emphasis in Scripture is on Christ. It's not on making celebrities. You know, in a day when that is so important in so much of our culture, I mean, these, these were not bigger-than-life individuals. These were average, ordinary men. That's why as I, as I looked at those massive statues in this archbasilica, I thought, this is not really what these men would be, be wanting. That they're not posing for those carvings. They were ordinary men. They, some of them, we don't even know what their occupation was. We don't know their family. We don't know anything about their background. They, they are usually in the background of the stories. And when they do come to the forefront, 
one of the things that we note is it's often because of their doubts, their disputes, or their struggles. That that's when they're noticed. And I think the truth is that's when we can relate. You know, we, we have no sermons that they preached. Other than a few that Peter's preaching at Pentecost and, and some of that. But, you know, wouldn't it be nice to be able to go online to sermon audio and find the category of sermons by the original apostles? You know, if they would have done a couple of weekend sessions, there are probably a lot of theological debates that would be cleared up very quickly. We have nothing of that. You know, we can read sermons online, but not theirs. You know, I can find Spurgeon's. I, I have a comp- the complete works of Jonathan Edwards, both on my, on my shelf and on my Bible software, on my computer. I mean, to print that out would be hundreds of pages. And yet with these men who were foundational, we have very little. Most of the apostles, if, we have little, if anything, that they even said. And a few of the manifestations that they did, you know, there are a couple of times that they did, you know, things that are noteworthy, but most of it is all in the background. We know that they had power to heal, to cast out the sick, to cast out or cast out demons, that, that they had these special opportunities and they went out and did this, but we don't have the record of those events other than it happened. Probably the most heroic act recorded was when they were with Christ and Peter walked on water and even there his faith wavered and so while we're familiar with their name and the prominence that they have most of them lived and served and died in obscurity and and I stress that because I think it's important for us because the issue is not are you famous but really are you faithful are we devoted to the Lord And the one thing we know about these men is that they had left all to follow Christ. Luke chapter 18, verse 28 tells us that. They were dedicated. They were faithful individuals. And so I want us to consider a couple of these just briefly this evening because we really don't have a lot about them. In Matthew chapter 10, we've looked at this passage before, but I bring you back here because we we see the names. I've given them to you in the list, but here it is in the Scripture. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanite, or probably the Canaanian, which spoke of him being a zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Now, in this list, we we have these individuals, but what we do know is they were chosen by Christ. And recognizing that aspect, the, the names that we see here, men of obscurity, James of Alphaeus, or as he's mentioned in, in the Gospel of Mark, James the Less. I mean, but other than that, we don't have any details. We, all we know is his name. His, his name is preserved for us as one of those that was chosen by Christ, but we only have a name. If he, if he ever wrote anything, a book, a letter, it's lost to history. I mean, we've got no text messages, no emails, nothing that he did. And, and if he asked Jesus any question. Or did anything that stands out from the group, Scripture does not record it for us. 
this is a man who lived in total obscurity. I mean, this is a man who even his name is common. James. There are several men named James in Scripture. And, and to see that James, the son of Zebedee, James, the half-brother of Jesus. I mean, even his name as listed, as stated, reflects that he lives in the obscurity. James the less. I mean, not James the great. I mean, it, now it could have referred to his stature, his physical features. Um, he probably was younger than the other James. Otherwise, he may have been referred to as James the elder. Uh, but even his name refers to a lack of influence. I mean, it's probably not what you're going to put in your yearbook as your nickname. <laughs> you know, James the Less. Put that on the back of your soccer jersey. You know, it, it, it's just, it, it speaks of obscurity. And there are several questions and even speculation regarding his family, but, but the Bible doesn't expressly tell us any of it. Because a disciple is not important because of his pedigree. All we know is a name. He lived in obscurity, but he was more than just a name to Jesus. And while all we have is James of Alphaeus, James the Less, we know that this was a man who was faithful. He served the Lord. He's more than just a name, and, and faithfulness is not tied to family, but it's an individual responsibility. We see as well this man, Judas, not Iscariot. He's actually the man with three names in Scripture. We find that he's, he's referred to as Thaddeus, Labaius, and Judas in these various passages that I've, I've given you there. In, in Mark's Gospel, in, in Matthew's Gospel, and then in, in Luke it says he's Judas, the brother of James. But the, the words the brother are in italics in our, our Bible, which means they're added. So literally it just says Judas of James. And, and he asks one question in Scripture. I'd like to have you turn to John, Gospel of John, chapter 14, because this man does ask one question. This is the only thing we find out about him. Know something about his family connection. We know nothing of his occupation. Very little about his family. But he asks one question. It's in John 14. This is the upper room discourse. This is when Jesus has told them he's going away. He's washed the feet of his disciples in chapter 13. He's told them one of them will betray him in, in that chapter. And then as he comes to the end, he, he, he mentions, this is where Peter in his boldness says, look, even if these others deny you, I will never do that. And Jesus told him, would you lay down to my, your life for me? I, I tell you, you will deny me three times. And then it comes chapter 14 where he's telling them, don't let your heart be troubled. Well, why was their heart troubled? Because Jesus has told them he's going away. They can't come. He's told them they will betray. And all of this has brought confusion. And, and now there's the back and forth and Thomas's frustration. Jesus, to Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And I've given you that, that verse there in, in John 14, 6, that very familiar verse to most of us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he says, if you've known me, you've known the Father. And, and Philip, with his question, well, just, just show us the Father and we'll be happy. Just have one teeny request. Show us God. 
And Jesus responds to Philip, look, have I been so long with you and you don't understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and this is the back and forth that's going on here. And, and then as we, we come down and there's, there's a, a confusion that as this unrest continues, and, and Jesus tells them he's going away, but he won't leave them without help. He will send a helper, a comforter, that the world can't receive, that's verses 16 and 17, but he will not leave them orphans. That's verse 18. And, and all of this that they're hearing isn't fitting their theological grid. It doesn't fit their, their preconceived ideas. And so we see this question then that's, that's asked, this one question in verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Now, probably in this question, Judas is thinking back to the Old Testament, probably Mount Sinai, to, to the Lord's appearing there, the, what, what we would refer to as a theophany, the appearance of God. And he's wondering, well, how could something like that happen? And we would see it, but the world will not. I mean, and again, they're expecting this, this great appearance. And he's probably thinking along that line and saying, Lord, how is it that you will disclose yourself to us but not to the whole world? Something like that's going to be seen by others. I mean, if, if anybody else was in the desert, they would have realized there's smoke on this mountain and, and there's all of this going on. And, and he was hopeful, but he didn't understand. Obviously, he's still hoping. They're, they're still looking for that earthly kingdom. And, and not without cause. Because Jesus had begun his ministry with the, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he had taught them to pray. Pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But note the Lord's answer in verses 23 and, and 24. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And, and again, I, I think there's probably a level of confusion because he said, we will make our home with, with you, the one who loves me and obeys. But back in verse 2, Jesus said, in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. And so I'm going to prepare a place for you. So, okay, he's, he's just told them, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And now he's saying, but we will abide with you. Do you understand their confusion? And, and what Jesus is telling them is that he will manifest himself to those who love him. And that love is seen in obedience. That they are to treasure his word and obey it. So he says, if anyone loves me, he obeys me. He keeps my word. And my Father loves him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. He says that our, our love is evidenced in our obedience. The one question that, that Judas asks is, how are you going to show yourself to us? And he says, it's going to be seen. I'm going to be seen in your obedience. That's when the love of Christ will be manifest. The simplicity of our Lord's answer was obey. 
If a man does right, he will know what is true. It results then in peace. And that's what follows. As Jesus says in verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That love grows in a heart of obedience to Christ. It's not out of duty, it's out of our delight. It's it's because of our love. It's not an issue of, of legalism or moralism that, well, I do these things because I have to. No, I do it because I love the Lord. It's not legalistic to obey and seek to be holy out of love. Now, if we're just doing things to go through the, the motions and check boxes and think somehow we, we merit favor, that's a problem. But our goal ought to be, Lord, how can, I, how can I love you? How can I be holy? Be holy as he is holy. And Jesus said, this is my peace that I leave with you. Love grows in a heart of, of obedience obedience to Christ and loving his word we see that back in verse 15 we see that in verse 21 and then in verse 27 that peace that comes the world's peace is based on resources if I have enough to get by then I think I'm good if I have enough power if I have enough money if I have enough whatever it is then I can be comfortable but God's peace depends on a relationship that there's that indwelling of the Holy Spirit the comforter It will come. I will not leave you orphans, Jesus told them. The beginning of the church is founded by 12 men that we know nothing about. Does that give us hope and confidence? Our confidence is not in them. Our confidence is in Christ. And Scripture points to Christ. I mean, we see these men struggling even at this moment shortly before jesus is betrayed and they're still wrestling and trying to figure it out it's like you know i'm I'm not sure they're ready to graduate yet and yet the confidence is in jesus christ and understanding and i think it's it's valuable for us to recognize that these are men who served in obscurity because was their usefulness did did god have a plan for these people for these individuals absolutely Does God have a plan for you? Well, people don't really know who I am. God does. And the truth is, most of us live and will die in obscurity. Do you realize that the typical church in America is small? In fact, a survey of 15,000 congregations that was conducted in 2020 found that that 70% of all churches in North America have less than 100 people. The median attendance has actually dropped. When I had come across statistics a number of years ago, it was actually a little higher. But the the median attendance, that means half of the congregations are smaller and half of them are larger. The median attendance is 65. 25% of churches have less than 50 people. And only 10% of churches in North America have more than 250 people. And at 500 people, a church is larger than 96% of the churches in North America. Most churches are small. One of the things we seek to do through International Baptist College and Seminary is to raise up people who can go in and help these small churches, to be involved in that ministry. But to to realize that most people don't sit in leadership positions with major organizations or serve on boards of directors or stand before 500 people Most people will never teach or preach. 
So what does it take to be content in obscurity? And what it takes is humility. It takes humility to be able to live in obscurity. And humility is often learned by being left out. That's one of the things we see with these apostles. Even though they were the 12, do you remember Andrew? I mean, he was one of the first two. And then he went and and found his brother, Simon Peter, and, and his business partners, Peter, James, and John, and they all become disciples. They're part of that. And, and he's the one who's not part of the inner circle. I mean, he's the one who reached his brother. And he doesn't get to be one of the inner three. I mean, you know, he missed out on some exciting moments, like the transfiguration. What does it take to live with that and not get bitter? It takes humility. He was faithful. You know, the Lord teaches us humility and being left out. There are a number of characteristics to humility. I just want to very quickly give us some bullet points. I think I've got 13 of them here. Took it out of a list about 24 or 25 and just consolidated. But I think it, it helps us to understand that humility recognizes and trusts the character of God. You know, a humble person is one who knows who God is and knows that even in trials, God is working all things together for His glory and for our good. And that he's a loving God. He's not going to waste hurts. That anything that comes, he will use for his good, for his glory and for our good. And so we can trust his, his character. It comes by focusing on Christ. A humble person sees Christ as their life and, and their first love. It's seen in thankfulness. The gratitude that flows easily from a, from a humble heart. Proud people are not real thankful because they they tend to think they deserve what came or they expect it. And if it doesn't come, then they get frustrated. But it's it's humility that says, you know, I don't deserve this. This is the grace of God. The grace that we've sung about, the grace that's been the theme through our service this evening, that's the grace that says, that, that results in a thankfulness. Humility results in being gentle and patient because this is being Christ-like. Jesus is the one who said, come unto me, you that are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I am gentle, I am lowly. God is patient. He's he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So to be gentle and patient is to really show the, the love of God and the character of God. Shows it, it's seen in a submitting to and obeying proper authority and doing it with the right attitude. Sixth one is, is putting others before ourselves. This is the mind of Christ that we read in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And, and then it talks about his humbling himself. And so it tells us to put others before ourselves, that we would, would recognize that. It speaks of being teachable. You know, proud people are hard to teach. They always have an excuse when things don't go right. They assume that they're right and they know, and, 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 and they're very difficult to teach because they know everything. Humble people know they need to learn. That, that they, they need somebody to help and guide them. 
and to be instructed. So there's a teachableness. They seek to build up others, to edify others, to with grace-filled words, as, as Ephesians 4.29 says. That there's that speaking the truth in love, that we are edifying one another in serving others. Humble people tend to be servants. They don't use their freedom, their liberty for selfish purposes. This is what Jesus is, is trying to instruct the disciples in the upper room, and he does it by example as he, as he washes their feet. And, and, and again, Peter can't stand that. He knows this is not appropriate, that the teacher washed the, the feet, and, and yet Jesus tells him, you don't understand. You need to follow my example. Serve others. To be willing to be treated as a servant. But selfish people don't want to do that. But in love, we're to serve one another. Humility means that we'll be quick to forgive. Because we remember what we've been forgiven. Even as God, in Christ, forgave you. Ephesians 5.32 It means repenting of sin. Because we want to be close to the Lord. We want that relationship. We recognize the, the horror of sin and then truly rejoicing for others. Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. And developing close relationships because there's a compassion for others, a desire for closeness that we can, we can encourage one another to love and to good works. You see this in Paul's example in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 31 and going on as he, he said, you know, night and day I've prayed for you. And then you see the reciprocal compassion for him. So where do you find examples of people like this? The apostles. These, these disciples are wonderful examples of men who, who lived in obscurity, Models of mediocrity, but testimonies of humility. You know, our position in God's service may not be one of prominence. We may live and die in obscurity, but it's God's work. That, that it takes that humility, but God is interested in our devotion in Him. God is glorified when we faithfully serve Him. I read a number of years ago that one of the queens of, of England had once commented that the most important letter in the alphabet was the letter M. And when somebody asked her about that, she said, well, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, it, it, it begins there and it says that there are not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. And the word there is well-born that are called. She said without the letter M, it would say not any noble. She said not many. Now, most of us wouldn't fall in the noble category. We'd fall in the not many category. But it's a testimony of who God calls. Because it goes on and it says in, in 1 Corinthians 1, 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things that are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things which are. Why? That no flesh would glory in His presence. No, God uses 
people that we wouldn't choose. We'd want the wise, the mighty, the, the noble, those that, those that we think, well, this will get us ahead. You know, we would say, give us the wise and the wealthy and the elite, the, the movers and shakers of the world, and, and we can establish an organization. And Jesus chose men that even the night that he was betrayed, betrayed him. They ran away. I say, really? You're gonna, these are going to be foundational to the early church? You know, can we scrap them and start over? No, because the power is in him. That no flesh will glory in his presence. That, that God makes people. He uses us, and, and the Lord makes a point by what he excludes. But I think it's important for us to also realize that our labor is for the Lord. The New Testament is written to glorify God, not men. We have men that are examples. We, we see them, but we also see their failings, their frailty. And, and Scripture doesn't take a lot of time to zero in on individuals. In fact, when you go to Hebrews chapter 11, the, the chapter that, that speaks of faith, and you've got a number of snapshots of individuals whose lives represent faith, and then beginning in verse 32, the passage concludes by indicating there's not really enough time to talk about these other people. How'd you like to have been one of them? Well, we, we ran out of space. You know, there, there isn't enough time to list the exploits of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and others. And those are named. And then there are the groups that are unnamed. And their conquests are categorized. They, they overthrew, they conquered. And then it moves to the category of the martyrs. Those who faced horrible, cruel deaths and would not reject the Lord. And then right in the middle of that, in verse 38 of Hebrews chapter 11, there's this, there's this parenthetical statement that I find fascinating. It says, of whom the world was not worthy. It's listing categories, recognizing individuals, and we don't even know their names because they weren't serving us. The world was not worthy of these people, but God knows their names. These men and women despised by the world were people that, that this world did not deserve because of its wickedness, but they're remembered by the Lord. And the Lord chose the obscure that He might be glorified. So why is it that we seek praise of people who will forget us? And even if they never forget us in their lifetime, they will take that memory to their grave. And others won't remember us. Or they might write a book. And we can read about a George Winsharp that none of us have ever heard about. But in Fox's Book of Martyrs, there are a number of pages recorded of his faithfulness to the Lord. Because it's not really about us and our praise. So therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That we would understand that it is really God who keeps the records. That we would, would see that He is not <clears throat> unjust for God. When, when many of the disciples, one of the conversations in Mark chapter 10, it says in verse 28, Then Peter said to him, We have left all to follow you. Okay, Lord, what's in, what's in this for us? 
We've given up everything this world has to offer to follow you. And Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And many who are first will be last and the last first. I wonder if the disciples said, well, Lord, could you drop that with persecutions part? <laughs> Up till then, it was good. <laughs> that was sounding good. We, we're going to get this multiple times back with persecution. Yeah, I, that's not the part. No, if you love me, you'll obey me. The disciples said, we'll follow you to the death. Well, they did, but not when they thought. And understanding the faithfulness of our God, I've mentioned the passage before, but I, I love Hebrews 6, verse 10. It says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward His name, in that you have ministered to saints and do minister. Faithful, patient, humble service may go unnoticed and unrecorded by others, but it is not forgotten by God. Our God knows if one sparrow falls from the sky. He sees your service. He sees what we do. He won't lose track of your labor of love. And so the goal is to labor for the Lord, to stand for truth, having done all to stand, to see His cause advance through the local church, to serve and minister. Labor for God may go unrecorded, but it will never go unrewarded. He is not unjust to forget. You know, most people serve in obscurity. We've heard of Charles Spurgeon. But how about the other preachers in England during his day? Those who were faithful. Of D.L. Moody, but how about the thousands of other evangelists who have sought to give the word faithfully? In fact, we'll never know the names of the vast majority of people who taught Sunday school in Arizona today. Yet God does. I mean, those who were teaching junior boys or third grade girls and did it faithfully as unto the Lord. Serving in obscurity. Models of mediocrity? Not in God's sight. We can hear, well done, faithful servant. Now, people who serve faithfully, even in our ministry, you know, I, probably most here don't even know who worked in our nursery today. The nursery workers do. If you picked up your child and they told you stories about what your child did, you do. But even people who serve in our ministry, we have so many facets to it. Those servants might not be known, but they are faithful. Unknown, but not unfaithful. And so we need to invest our life in that which is eternal. Losing our life in serving the Lord for the cause of others. We know very little about most of these apostles. But they heard, well done, good, faithful servants. They were foundational to the church. We too can hear, well done. Because the one who really builds his church is Jesus Christ. 
Tri-City Baptist Church is not my church, it's not Pastor Singleton's or Pastor Mike's, it's Christ's church. And our goal is that we would be found faithful. He doesn't need us, but He uses us. And what a joy to be able to serve Jesus for the glory of God the Father, that He might receive glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, not just in this time, but throughout all ages. Because He uses those that people wouldn't choose, that no flesh will glory in His presence. So therefore, let us too strive to be faithful. Faithful without fame, but molded by the Master, that we might hear, well done. Let's pray together. Father.